So this, this summer, we're in a series called By Faith, By Faith. And what we're doing is walking through chapter 11 of the New Testament book of Hebrews. And this, this is a book written to Christians with a Jewish background. That's why it has this name, Hebrews. So it kind of sounds like an Old Testament book, but it's, it's a New Testament book. And what we're, what we're doing as we go through chapter 11 is we're looking at just one character every week. So last week was Abel, <clears throat> and next week we're going to look at Noah. But today we come to one of the least known characters in the Bible, Enoch. Enoch, it's spelled E-N-O-C-H. And I'm getting a hand saying, if anybody needs a Bible, raise your hands. Because you're going to need it for two verses. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, raise your hands. Some guys will come around and give you a Bible. Raise them nice and high so they can see you. With the lights turned down dim. Anybody else need a Bible? Raise your hand. And if, when you get your Bible, by the way, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be in verses 5 and 6 today. But before we get to those verses, while you're looking those up, I just wanted to let you know that I've never even met somebody named Enoch. As a matter of fact, I never even heard of somebody named Enoch. I mean, it's, it's a rare name. I mean, does anybody here, anybody here know somebody named Enoch? Look at that. There's two, three, four. Wow, five. That's, that's kind of amazing. I did a quick Google search because Google is the source of all knowledge in the 21st century. <clears throat> and I found that in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries that Enoch's actually a very popular name. So maybe we should bring it back. I mean, I think 26 West is getting them to be known as kind of a baby factory. You just go over in that kids area, and man, there's a lot of babies back there. And we need a lot of names. You don't want everybody to be named the same name. So Enoch is, should, be, it should be on the baby list. It's easy to say. It's easy to spell. And as we're going to see here today, it's a really, really cool story. So let's read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 about the story of faith and Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So who is Enoch? How did he make this list of great people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Because as we'll hear the following weeks, there's a lot of famous people on this list. There's Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. But Enoch, I mean, what do we know about Enoch? By the way, there's actually two people named Enoch in the Bible. One is in Genesis chapter 4, and he's the grandson of Adam. And the other Enoch we read about in Genesis chapter 5, and that's a few generations later. Uh, and that's the Enoch we're talking about here in Hebrews chapter 11. It comes from uh, uh, Genesis chapter 5. But what do we know about Enoch? Not a ton. But what we do know about Enoch is pretty spectacular. This verse quotes Genesis 5, verse 24. You, need to turn, you don't need to turn there. Matter of fact, we're just going to camp out in these two verses all day. So you don't, if you're there in your Bible, you're there for the day. Verse, uh, five, uh, cha Genesis chapter 5, verse 24 says this. He could not be found because God had taken him away. 
And if you were to go back and study Genesis chapter 5, what you would find out is that Enoch did not experience death. Lucky him. I mean, I want to know where to sign up for that deal. The only other person we know of in the Bible that didn't actually die, that just went straight to heaven, is Elijah. And you could read about that this afternoon if you want in 2 Kings chapter 2. It's a pretty cool story as well. But I actually, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't remember a lot of stuff that I hear. But one thing I remember from years ago, Carl Palmer from Cedar Mill Bible Church, if you ever, if you, any of you know of him, he was preaching about death. That's an exciting sermon. Uh, but he said, I'm not afraid of death, just the process of dying. And I don't know about you, but I'm with that. I'm not afraid of death. I'm excited to be with Jesus in eternity. eternity. But the process of dying, you know, I'm, I'm a little fearful of that because you don't know how you're going to die. I would love to not die like Enoch and Elijah, but most likely we'll experience death. And it might be a real easy sit down in the couch and pass away or go to sleep one night and wake up in, in eternity with Jesus. I, don't, I have a phobia I'm going to share with you. This is just a weird thing about me. I don't, I've, I've actually prayed this prayer. God, however you take me, let me not drown. There's something about drowning that just freaks me out. Anybody see the movie uh, The Perfect Storm? I saw that as a full-on adult and had nightmares for weeks. Like, I don't want to die that way. I don't know why, but I just, I just don't. But you can't help but wonder, why did God take Enoch into eternity? And I can tell you with 100% certainty that I have no idea. And you could study this until you're blue in the face. You will not find a reason why God did this. But what we do see in the text is something else about Enoch that is particularly fascinating. Notice the connection between faith and pleasing God in verse 5. Enoch, Enoch was commended as one who pleased God. In Genesis 5, we learn about Enoch's rep, his reputation. He walked faithfully with God. Now, the, the passage in Genesis applies that this wasn't a surprise to the community around him. He was a man of faith and everybody knew it. And by the way, he lived 365 years. That's tough to be a man of faith or a woman of faith for 365 years. By the way, I was just studying this. I had to wonder, what do you get somebody for their 300th birthday? Here's a shirt. Oh, thanks. I got 150 of them. Uh, but as we sit here today in this beautiful Oregon summer, we look back sometimes and think, what were our New Year's resolutions? What were our goals that we may or may not have had at the beginning of the year? Or what are things that you want to get done this year? Or how's this year going for you? Maybe you had a goal, something like this year I want to get a new job. Maybe I want to decide where to go to college. Or the ever-present this year, I want to lose 10 pounds. The annual goal, right? Uh, or I want to read the Bible more. I want to be more encouraging person. All of us have goals in our head, whether they're written or not. But I'm going to guess that, like me, you don't have this goal, either written or not written. Although maybe after today, we should all have this goal. And here is the goal. In 2017, I want to please God. Just Simple, flat, straight out, I want to please God. It's a simple-sounding goal, and probably most of you wouldn't argue with that as a good goal. 
Although some of us, including myself, have been to the corporate how to set goals seminars, and you can critique this and say, that's not very specific, and it's not very measurable. So hold on to that thought, right? But this is a very broad goal. I want to please God. Because here's the thing. When we tend to set goals and New Year's resolutions, we tend to talk about our tasks, not God's response. We tend to talk about what we do and not how God's uh, how God is going to respond. Now, don't get me wrong. What we do is very important. We should do good things. We should give. We should share. We should uh, uh, serve. We should bear one another's burdens. These are all good things, and the world needs Christians to do good things. But, Christians, we need to check our motivation. We need to remember God's response to our faith. What pleases him, not what pleases us. See, we live in a prosperous culture here in America, in Oregon, and we have to be careful because so many times our goals are subtly about creating comforts for ourselves and the basically selfish goals about how to make a better life for ourselves. We need to revisit our goals and say, in light of pleasing God, Lord, what would you have me do? So how does this actually work? Let's look at verse 6 again. It says, without faith... It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Well, the first thing in this verse is super obvious. If we want to please God, if that's our goal, we must have faith because our faith pleases God. And our lack of faith does not please God. Again, this is obvious, but what does it really, really mean? In week one of the series, a couple weeks ago, Jose mentioned that the word faith means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But in this verse, we're very, very fortunate. And that's what I love about the story of Enoch is because we get exactly what the author means by faith. And it's because as we look at the verse, this little tiny word, because. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because. And then he gives you the answer of what he believes faith to be. And the first thing we know, excuse me, the first thing we notice is this phrase, anyone who comes to him, him being God, anyone who comes to God, anyone who comes to Jesus. Such an easy phrase to just skip over as we read the verse quickly. But today we want to slow down with the benefit of a little bit of time today and slow down and think about that and stop for a moment and consider just how profound that is. Human beings have access to the almighty God, the creator of the universe, the alpha and the omega, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He says, come to me, come to me. And all we do is come to him and he accepts us just the way we are. We come to God, we come to Jesus. Here's the key. That comes first, first in everything we do, our tendency, and I say our tendency, I mean yours and mine, is to come to God or Jesus second. What do I mean by that? How many of you this week, super practical, this week have a conversation coming up that may or may not be a little tough or a meeting coming up that may or might be a little tough or a decision to make? This week, just show of hands, how many have some? Like at least half of you 
have something coming up. Well, how are you going to go into that meeting, that conversation, or that decision? The typical natural thing to do is to go study up, read up, explore, maybe get some worldly counsel or maybe some godly counsel. And then after you've kind of sort of made a decision, then what do you do? You pray and say, God, please bless this. What if we reverse that and did what this verse shows? And what if we come to God and come to Jesus first and say, Lord Jesus, this week I have a conversation, I have this meeting, I have the decision Show me the way, lead me, guide me, give me your precepts, give me your Bible verses that apply to this situation. What if we did that first and then went and got into the meeting or the conversation or decision? Do you think God would honor that? I know he would honor that because that's the way it works in my life and that's the way it works in your life. Super practical examples in marriage. I know many of you are married. Some of you are called to singleness all your life. That's awesome. Some of the singles are called to be married, and many of us are married. But if you are married, it's a well-known fact, two biggest problems in marriage, finances and communications. They just are. And Vicky, Vicky's here in the front row. In our marriage, when we first bought a house, we did it backwards. We went and got counsel from actually a godly Christian person about how to buy a house. And this particular person said, you want to buy the biggest house you can that you could possibly afford. Put zero down if you can and just go for it. Does that align with the Bible? No. If I had read the Bible and been smart about going to God first or going to Jesus first, we wouldn't have done that. That thinking, by the way, was partly what led to the 2008 financial crisis, right? Because as a culture, we don't go to God first. So I'm here today to say these verses are telling us, come to God first, come to Jesus. This is a prevalent theme throughout all of scripture. Jesus said it's super simple in Matthew 11, verse 28. You don't need to turn there, but this is what Matthew 11, verse 28 says. Jesus speaking, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Just says, come. One of the illustrations that might help you is, I love a good movie. The challenge is there's less and less good movies because Hollywood's not really putting out a lot of good movies, right? And one of the things that drives me the most crazy about Hollywood is when they touch on faith. Because they picture faith as somebody that has to go get religion or that person found God in quotes. He found God because God's hard to find and he had to go on this search and he found God. Nothing could be further from the truth. God actually wants us to come to him and be with him and talk to him. This is one of the reasons why God warns us throughout the entire scriptures to avoid false gods and idols. The first commandment. You ever wonder why the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Wow. God, that seems a little self-serving. No, he's doing that for us. Because when I follow false gods or false idols, I tend to not come to him. I go to something else. So we don't have to go find God. He's right here waiting for him. Let's continue unpacking verse 6. It says, anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists. Well, that kind of makes sense, does it? You're not going to have coffee with Joe next Tuesday at a coffee shop if Joe doesn't exist. What are you doing next Tuesday? I'm going to go meet Joe. Who's Joe? Uh, he's just a ghost. 
but I'm going to go meet him. That doesn't make sense, right? You have to believe that God exists. You just, you just need to know that he actually exists. Now think about Enoch's situation. He lived before Noah, before Abraham, before Moses, David, Jesus, the apostles, before the Old Testament was even written, before the New Testament certainly was written. Why did he believe that God exists? What was his evidence? Well, since we were in Romans all winter long, I wanted to throw up on the screen so you don't have to turn there, a verse from Romans 1, verse 20. Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. So how did Enoch know that God existed? Just by looking around. He didn't have any other of the patriarchs or the Bible. He just looked around and he observed, this is what God did. My daughter Jamie just gave birth to our first grandson about two months ago in May. His name is Patrick Tanaka Mike, because my daughter's white American and her husband is black Zimbabwe, so he's got this really cool name. And Jamie was waiting to be discharged from the hospital. Uh, she was there for about three days, and she was just holding little Patrick in her arms, sitting in a chair. And I actually wasn't watching Patrick. I was watching my daughter watch Patrick. And there was something about the look in her eyes that I've never, she's 25 years old, I've never seen this look in her eyes. The love was so deep. But then all of a sudden she was startled and she sat up and she says, how could anyone not believe in God? Look at what he did. So I brought a picture for you today so you could look at what he did. That's Patrick Tanaka Mike. Now, Jamie carried him for nine months, but did, he, but did she manufacture those ten fingers on his giant hands or his ten toes or his lungs or his heart or his kidney or his intestines? No, she didn't manufacture that. God made that little boy. And miracle of miracles, he made all those parts work together so it sustains Life. So I read verse 6 again for you. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, look around, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The text says that after coming to God, we must do two things. First, believe that he exists, and secondly, earnestly seek him. If you ask anybody today, so how does our faith please God? That's the answer. We believe that he exists, and then we earnestly seek after God or Jesus. Now, I want to pause for a moment because some of you are thinking, going, wait a second. You just said that God was here, available, ready for me to come meet him. And now you're saying earnestly seek him. Is, is that an apparent contradiction? Which is it? Do, do we come to Jesus just openly, or do we have to earnestly seek him. Well, it's, it's both. And, and let me explain to you how we get to that. If you're, again, remember back to week one of the series, remember Jose said faith is relational. Remember that? Faith is relational. That's the key. So let me illustrate with a human relationship. When Vicky and I met at college, 
I had just spent five long weeks in the hospital. My intestines hadn't tied themselves into a knot. The surgeons had to go in and cut them out. And then when they do that, your intestines go into shock and they don't digest food for a while. And then usually after a couple of days, it, the digestive process starts up again. Or in my case, five weeks later, it starts up again. So I couldn't eat any food. They fed me by IV for five weeks. Needless to say, I lost a lot of weight. It was the only time in my entire life that anybody called me skinny. But it was in that skinny, five-week, malnourished state that I met Vicky, And she was super kind to me because I must have looked like some kind of an abused puppy. Uh, but, but our story's not love at first sight. All I was thinking about was food. I mean, here's this beautiful woman in front of me, and I'm just hungry, right? Because I haven't eaten for five weeks. But I knew she existed. There she is. And later, as I started getting more nourishment, and food back into me, and I wasn't thinking about food 24-7, I went, whoa, she's good-looking, she's cute, she's smart, I might want to pursue her. So I say to myself, so I do, and I earnestly seek after her and pursue her, and what am I rewarded with now, many, many years later? A wife, two daughters, beautiful daughters, married to godly guys, one of them sitting down here in the front row, and the other daughters just gave birth to a grandson. I mean, wow, the blessings are incredible. I think our relationship with God works just the same way. See, we hear about Jesus. We may not be that interested, but then we come to him and we meet with him. He's kind to us and he's welcoming because let's face it, we all are basically abused puppies, right? But it's not until we earnestly seek him that our relationship with him starts to grow and blossom into something much bigger and much better and more significant. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So they're both are true. Jesus is waiting and available and wanting us to come to him. But when we come to him, to get a deeper relationship, we need to actually seek after him earnestly. So that's the passage. That's what I believe it says. How do we apply that? How does that work today? What are some specific measurable goals for some of you that really want that? How do we develop a faith that pleases God? Here today in this gathering of people, there are many ages, many backgrounds, many, many levels of belief representative, how to all of us together corporately do this. Well, it depends on where you're at, right? Because some are in a different place in their walk with God or meeting God than others. And that is completely, totally cool. In fact, if you're here for the very first time, welcome. I would encourage you to go listen to the podcast from the last couple of weeks from this series and continue to follow us through this summer as we uh, teach on, on faith. But let me just ask you two groups of questions to help you actually put some meat on the bones, so to speak. And one or both of these may apply to you. And if neither do, well, we're going to worship in a second. So uh, the first group of questions is this. Do you believe God exists? Or if we fast forward to the 21st century, do you believe Jesus is God? Or most importantly, ultimately, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah? If you answer, I don't know, or I'm not sure, can I encourage you to go do some research? 
go spend some time figuring it out. Here are a couple of resources I'm going to put up on the screen for you. Uh, the first one is a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And the second one is a book I just read uh, this summer called Cold Case Christianity by Jay Warner Wallace. And the, the similarity between these two books is both these authors were atheists. Neither of them are pastor or minister types. Lee Strobel is an investigative reporter, and he started investigating Christianity. And Jay Warner Wallace, this one's pretty cool, he's an L.A. LA homicide cold case detective, like the show. So they both applied their investigative reporting skills and their homicide cold case detective skills, and, and they applied those to the facts and evidence about Jesus to figure out what's the truth. Now, just to illustrate this further, I went through this myself. I wasn't an atheist, but I had a little bit of crisis of faith when I was in my 20s. And I had some real significant doubts about Christianity because some of my friends were telling me, God calls you to a blind faith and you just drank the Kool-Aid. And that didn't make me very comfortable. I wanted, I wanted to know that I knew that this is true. It made sense to me that if God created me with a brain, that he would reveal himself enough to me to where I can go figure this out. Now, these resources weren't available back when I was in the 20s, but there was a resource by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Like these two gents, McDowell didn't believe in God, but he was a lawyer. He used his lawyer skills to go explore Jesus Christ, attempting to disprove that Jesus resurrected from the dead and found out, whoa, it's true. Let me give you a quick taste if you go look at this. Some of the things you'll find out is if you read these sources and others. By the way, if you don't want to read the books, you could actually stick that title in Google and then add video. Uh, Strobel has a video that has about 2 million hits and Wallace has a video that has about 13 million hits and it's about a 45-minute message on their books. But here's kind of the common message that you'll hear. The gospel eyewitnesses are reliable, or what you're going to find out, for a bunch of reasons. First, they were timely. The gospel accounts were written 25 years after Jesus by eyewitnesses. People that were alive when Jesus was alive wrote about him. Did you know that Alexander the Great, which you read about in school, and you probably believed everything you read about him, did you know that the biographies written about Alexander the Great were written 400 years after his life? I mean, which one's going to be more accurate? Well, obviously the, the Gospels. You'll find out that Gospels can be verified by non-biblical sources. Josephus was a Roman historian who wrote about Jesus. Thallus was a Samaritan historian that wrote about Jesus. Tacitus was a Roman senator that wrote about Jesus. You'll find out that we could confirm the accuracy of the Gospels by the early church fathers, Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement, because they quoted the Gospels all the time. If you grab my notes, you're going to find some Bible verse quotes in here. There's so much writing by the early church fathers. You could take all those writings and almost recreate the Gospels without even having the Gospels. And lastly, you find out that we can attest the Gospels are true because the writers had no ulterior motive. This wasn't a way to get money and get rich. This wasn't a way to get power and status. No, this was a way to get persecuted. And they wrote them anyway. So there was no ulterior motive. So if you, if you are having trouble with believing that God exists, that Jesus exists, that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah, 
don't hesitate this summer. Go explore. Go examine the evidence for yourselves with the brain that God made in you. And let me know what your conclusion is if you do it. Second group of questions is for the rest of us who already believe, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the res resurrected Messiah. Do we earnestly seek after God or Jesus on a daily basis? That's a challenging question. I'm not here to give you a guilt trip. This is for me too. Has our faith become just another thing in our life? Is it something we just do on Sundays? Or do I look and live my life through the grid of, does this please God? If it does, I'll do it. If it doesn't, I won't. Or is this all about pleasing myself? Now, there's nothing wrong with doing things that pleases yourself. But it, if it doesn't please God, you don't want to do it, right? You want to find things that pleases God. And then, oh, by the way, you'll get blessings as well. Remember, Enoch was one that was commended for pleasing God. That should be our reputation. But here's the crazy thing. God enjoys our company. I mean, we think of this, oh, this is going to be hard. It really doesn't have to be hard. God wants to hang out with us. It's crazy to think about that. To be creator of the world, the savior of the world, Jesus wants to hang out with you and me. He wants to be with us. It only takes a little bit of faith on our part to get there. But we do need the desire to please him. And we do need to have the diligence to seek after him. But it all starts with this goal of I want to please God in my faith and in my life. Last illustration for the, for the day. Um, I've been fortunate to, to take some Bible classes at seminary, but I got to tell you, as good as that experience was, I think most of what I learned about God is by being a father, just raising kids, making mistakes, and now being a grandpa. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing what you learn. And, and one of the things that I've, I've learned is that when the kids grow up, and go away, and we don't hear from them, it saddens me. Now, my kids were really good about this, so Kelsey, don't worry. She was awesome about this. But, you know, it doesn't take much for me to go, oh, I really miss my kids. I want to hear from them. I want to talk to them. And when they call, it pleases me because I get to spend time with them. But catch this. Don't miss this. It's probably, this might be the most important thing I say all day. Here's the wild thing. When I've missed them and I'm saddened by, you know, a temporary lack of, you know, relationship communication, when, we, when, he, when they call or visit, it doesn't even matter why they're calling. It's not always good news. In fact, a lot of times, if you have older kids and are in college and look for a job, a lot of times it's tough news, it's hard news. But it still pleases me to talk to them and be with them. I think that's exactly what Jesus wants. But the roles are reversed. We're the kids. It doesn't matter what you're going to Jesus with. He's pleased when you go to him and you talk to him, have faith in him. So in a moment, we're going to sing some songs. We're going to go to the uh, tables and take communion. But know this, Jesus wants us to visit with him seek him. He's available. He's ready to hear from us. And this gives him great pleasure. Really, more pleasure than I could ever imagine as a father Jesus has when we talk to him. With the good things and the bad things. Our faith gives him great pleasure. And then we receive this great blessing and reward when we earnestly seek after him.
ultimately the reward for seeking Jesus is life with Jesus himself.